This is Lindsay O. And Maria D. And, and welcome, welcome to, to the, the Crushing, Crushing Bass Podcast. And what's this podcast about? I thought this one would start with an interview series that I did um, a few questions just about our approach at the college and uh, what we see as the overview for new learning methods in bass. It must have been interesting times touring through the 70s. Yeah, well, it was. Um, I mean, you know, we all thought it was going to go on forever. Um, people say, you haven't got many photographs. And it's like, well, not that many people were running around taking a thousand photos at, at a gig. You know, like now with um, smartphones and things. That's for one. But two, um, we thought it'd go forever. Um, there was no sign that the party was going to stop. So why record it when it's only getting better? Might as well wait until you know, the peak moment and record that. And of course, you know, there were some peak moments that were recorded, but we all thought it was going to be ongoing. Um, and of course it wasn't, you know. And um, yeah, it was great. People were cool. Um, they were definitely not as uh, stressed out or, or you know, um, driven by um, the pace of life as much. You meet some very cool people when you're touring, really switched on connected people. And um that was that's really really good um the the uh parties were really really good especially after the gig not into uh pre-gig partying but after gig partying yeah of course it's a lifestyle thing and you know the volume was so loud your ears would be ringing like hell till you know 5 30 in the morning and uh it was a good way to fill in the time and you know quite often you going to bed when the sun comes up and getting up at three in the afternoon. It's crazy. You know, it's absolutely crazy. I was in London once and didn't see the sun for a month in, in the UK. It was winter, but uh, yeah, didn't see it. And it was like, man, I haven't seen daylight. I haven't seen daylight for a month. I've got to do something special to do this, you know. So uh, yeah, you get those situations. And also, you know, some of the guys were all all pals, especially in the Australian touring, you know, it was, it was a busy scene and lots of miles and lots of venues, but only small scene for, you know, the guys that were doing the national stuff and some international stuff, we all knew each other, you know, I was good friends with Bon Scott from uh, ACDC from 1971 until, you know, until he passed and, um, he was a great guy and you know i remember angus and malcolm in, a, in their first band playing support to a band that we were in um you know things like that you can't sort of how do you how do you replace stuff like that you know apart from you know there's many many stories of, of those sort of things you know seriously well-known people or people you've played with i remember Someone released an album that was supposedly the 10 best guitarists in Australia and I'd played with seven of them. Um, so those things are hard to beat. And uh, it was great development time too because, you know, we went from, um, you know, four track, eight track, 16 track, 32 track, um, you know, two inch tape, uh, watching the producers ripping into that stuff with their razor blades and, having to nail the takes because on tape there's only so many you can do before you saturate the tape and it, it sounds horrible. So, 
you know, the playing in the studios um, mostly were um, live. Um, certainly the rhythm section were, you know, my, my gig. Uh, one downside of that, of course, was uh, laying around for like nine hours in the studio waiting for them to get the drum sound. Um, and then they'd replace it with an electric drum in the mix. It's like, well, why to hang around nine hours to do that? And then you threw it away anyway. Uh, that was more early 80s thing. The Lin drum became the, um, the fascination point for most producers. But as a bass player, man, I used to do my head in. <laughs> I go, are you going to use these drums? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Okay, all right. Oh, well. And you can't go anywhere because as soon as they're happy with the drum sound, it's like, okay, bass time. And it's like, uh, if you've been wandering for a couple of hours and holding the studio up, that's not good. So you're there, you're stuck, you know. And so, um, yeah, that that was that was not one of the fun times. But yeah, the 70s was awesome. I, I thought it was really, really good. Um, so busy and into the early 80s. But the high point really, though, for me was the late 60s to about 1974, when the music was much freer and open and creativity was higher. And um, 74 was kind of like the beginning of glam rock, a record company interference went through the roof. Um, and I think that was the, you know, starting to be the, the decline that we couldn't see the effect, you know, that it would have. Um, and you know, them relabeling everything and inventing genres and more product, new product, more product, new product. Um, we couldn't see any of that. You know, we were doing okay. Our mates were doing okay. Someone were doing amazingly well. Um, so we just thought, you know, this is how it's going to be. And uh, yeah, so, you know, that, that part. But the high point, yeah, I think the high point, if you were there, the high point would be 68 to 74. And then, of course, after that, there's been great times and good music and everything else. But if you had to pick a slice and go, where do you want to go back to? That'd be my slice. What would be your venue of choice? Ah, well, it used to be the world, but now, <laughs> now I think the best venues are the two to two and a half thousand, maybe four and a half thousand tops theatres. The uh, yeah, the theatre shows because you've got enough production for it to be a real warmp, but it's not four semi-trailers out the back, you know, it's not the circus size production. It's intimate with the audience. Usually you can get a great sound in those places because they were, a you know, acoustically designed. And um, yep, that'd be, that'd be me. I'd do a tour of theatres before anything else if I was given that choice. You also have a load of studio experience. Um, yeah, I do. I think it came with the territory because, you know, recording was so hands-on and band-on. And if you were, um, a band needed a bass player to record, you know, you needed your chops right. You needed to be able to just cut it because at the end of the day, as well as you're playing, it comes down to um, production costs, you know. So no one's going to sort of pay you to play on a, on something and then spend all day waiting for you to get it right. So 
people play safe, yeah? And uh, certainly people looking after budgets play safe. So if they know someone's got it and quick, then they'll ring you all the time. So I think that's part of it. Plus, um, you know, every band I've been in has been a recording band at some level, whether it was released or not, or underground, you know. I've played some great music with bands that would be underground, classified underground, not mainstream. Um, always recording, doing things. Uh, and you just, you know, you just um, become um, someone comfortable in that environment and that makes a big difference too um, and so yeah you just get a lot done and then uh, by watching producers and I've worked with some great ones you see what they're doing that sort of opens that door for you um, and I actually studied it but after years of you know watching it and um, yeah and then you know I've had a lot of people asked me to do things, you know, I've repaired tracks, a couple of movie title tracks where we pretty much threw the whole band away and kept the singer and then recreated the whole thing again because the song behind what he was doing in those examples just wasn't much. So we sort of, you know, rewrote, redid, redid. So there's a few of those and um, Again, that opens the door. Someone wants you to do an album, an EP for someone, yeah, things like that. A lot of indie artists. Um, so yeah, I've, I've done a lot of time in studios. You know, I owned one for a while. Um, bit like a boat, you know. <laughs> it's a money well, but um, yeah, you know, I think everyone's got them now. You know, home studios of some level. But again, it's one of those things. It's it's very difficult to do a course. And, you know, an audio engineering course will teach you how to twiddle the knobs. But um, production is a whole different thing. It's conceptual, you know. Uh, I don't really do the knobs much these days, not professionally. Um, I'd prefer to have a really fast desk, desk jockey there. Uh, and the ideas flow and we work together and get it done because I know what I want. I know how to do it, but I don't want to be distracted from what I'm hearing by having to stop and do this. I'd rather keep the flow of creativity going while someone else is doing that at the same time. Uh, that works, you know, way better than the one-out job for me. So, yeah, a lot of, uh, lot of studio stuff here, done a lot. When you're producing, what is it that you're looking for? Um, well, the first thing is a good song, definitely. I mean, I think everyone producing would be saying that. Um, you know, and there's some great songs. Um, they're not right when they come into the studio, but you can hear that there's a possibility here, there's potential, and it's up to you then to get that out. And, you know, that can be uh, an inv quite an involved thing. One of my um, strengths is uh, frequencies and um, flow in the arrangement, right? They'd be my... My two. If someone said, well, what do you specialize in? I'd say frequencies and flow, energy flow. So once the energy of the song starts, it's not interrupted all the way through. Now, um, sounds like it's, that's obvious. It, it isn't. No. Sometimes you, you know, you're throwing big chunks away and you're bringing chunks from the back to the front. And a lot of the stuff in that area, you, um, 
you'd have gone mad with tape. <laughs> you've gone nuts but with digital recording you can do things you know even experiment can we just try this then we'll all have a vote on it you know type of thing and make it a, a democracy although it'll be um, probably governed by you know a dictator um, someone's got to have the power of veto um, but um, yeah you uh, you kind of can try it if even yourself, you, you saw, yeah, it doesn't really work. You can throw it back again, you know, but with tape and that, you couldn't. It's one thing I like about the digital thing, the flexibility that it gives you. Um, but you've got to be using it, you know, it's a tool. You can't allow it to use you. You can't have someone who's pathetic and using all sorts of digital tricks to make them acceptable because it won't, it won't be right. It won't be right, you know. Um, it's just not the way music's made. Uh, so all, all of that, you know, fabrication and, and stuff like that and, you know, over-tweaking the voice and over-perfecting everything, it's just not natural, you know. It just doesn't sound natural. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, a good producer, they're looking for a song with potential and they're looking for people that are open-minded and um, are looking for the best possible outcome for their song rather than their ego being protected at all costs and the song ends up compromised. Yeah. What advice would you give to upcoming bassists? Well, obviously coming from the angle here with Crushing Bass, um, I would suggest that they get onto a really good course with them in mind that starts from go and runs connected and in sync all the way to woe, you know. Um, get away from all the scattered information that's out there on the net. There's more information available to young musicians these days than ever in history, and yet there's less being achieved on the grand scale, you know. Um, I know someone who's an engineer in a studio, just to go off topic a little bit, he said he has young bands come in and they haven't even met each other. They've done it all online, but when they come together in a studio, they don't know what to do, or, you know, this part doesn't, and this guy can't play in a studio, or, you know, without that trick, he's out of time, and all this sort of thing. So. You know, we didn't have that luxury. We were working it out hard. We were, um, we have to do it, needle drop, you know, over and again, over again, over again on a, on a uh, vinyl. You know, you want to learn how to lick, learn to lick or work out the vocals. You know, by the time you worked them out, you knew them because you'd done it so many times to get, what's he saying? What's he saying? What's he saying? Or that lick, that lick. You couldn't slow it down or anything. You had to just like over and over and over and over again. So, you know, that was a big difference. We had to figure it out. You go and see someone who was a, a better player, you know, and take on board how they were doing things. But, and that was great. But other than that, it was really dependent on, on you doing the hard yards. Um, and there's no option. I mean, everyone did it. It's not, you know, there's no, no other options. There was no, uh, early on, there was no such thing as sound in your car. People fall off the chair. What? Um, there's no sound in your car. There was no portable anything. You know, well, a portable vinyl player that 
the speakers are usually rubbish, you know. Um, I know the big classic Cadillacs and that had the eight track in them, or a, actually a turntable. But yeah, I don't think many musicians had access to that type of stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think to a young musician, plug in, commit, follow the suggestions um, and the dogma where that is actually applied, you know, for good purpose and do the practice and take the time. You know, it's, it's not a fast thing. You know, learning, learning a lick in a day won't improve your playing at all. Um, practicing that lick every day, yeah, that will. So because you can play it, doesn't mean you know it. And then of course there's that other level. You may be able to play it and you may be able to play it really, really well. But would you have written it? And that's another level of information, you know. And 99% of the time, of course not. You know, so being able to play Jimmy Page guitar licks doesn't mean you can play like Jimmy Page. You know, that, that's kind of, remember that, you know. But Jimmy Page had to start somewhere too. What separates a great bassist from an average one? I'd say the ability to listen. You know, obviously timing, rhythm, that sort of thing, dexterity, um, that all comes into it. But it's the ability to listen, uh, to play what the song needs, not what you want to put in it. If what you want to put in it is what the song needs, great. You know, but people, uh, they go looking uh, too busy, you know. The pocket is a highly defined and rarely found zone. Um, playing in time doesn't mean you're playing in the pocket. Playing, um, playing all over the neck doesn't mean you're playing in the pocket. Uh, holding it, locking it down and playing what the song needs with thump, with punch, with light touch, with whatever it is, both hands working, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the pocket. But if you've got to like contort your face and, uh, you know, look like you might saw yourself by the effort to hold a bass line, you're not in the pocket. You're not a pocket player. You need to go back and start again. See, so many people, uh, you know, down here's the money notes anyway. This is where it's all, you know, 99% of the time, you're spending your time down here, you know. And you see someone approaching a driving hold, and then next minute they're up here going, so what about that? No one can swing, tap their foot, dance, no rhythm in that. That's just embellishment, it's an ornament. You can't live on the ornaments. You know, the, the down here is where it is. You know, but they're up here all the time. Um, and then they wonder why, you know, they're not getting through to the audience or someone, or, or you know, someone in the band tells them they're, they're great, or a friend of the band, oh, that's great. But that's not your job. Your job is to, like, work to the audience. The audience want to hear that driving, thumping, fat bass sounds. And if, for some moment, 
they need the other tones, then dial them in. Come up here by all, but don't have this as your gig. This is your gig. You know, double bass, you know, which I also play, but a double bass. Your gig's down here. You might go up over the body, you know, in thumb position and go, do 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 You don't see double bass players staying up there all night. They're back down here again. And it's, it keeps the playing is, is simpler and more to the point, you know. Uh, these things, you can overplay on these and you can underplay, you know. But you can spend all night up here. But the only person you're impressing is probably yourself and maybe your mother. Um, no, you know, you've got to get back to where it was at. And, you know, it started off, it's a percussive instrument but it's governed by pitch. So it needs to be played in a way that makes people move because that's its whole job is to make people move. You know, we're the glue. So um, I would say to young bass players, if they're obsessed with, you know, if you can do that, great. No one wants to do that all night. <laughs> no, no one. So, you know, um, Stay appropriate to the music you're playing and listen because you need to know what everyone else is playing because we're the glue and we need to know where we seep in to seal it up and that moves around. As far as learning or developing, what would you say is the right approach? Uh, learning or developing, be prepared to put in the hours. Put in the hard work. Um, you know, the old, yeah, Rome wasn't built in a day and neither were good musicians. Um, takes you, you know, what, three to four years to be a carpenter. It takes you 10 years to approach being a, a musician. And that's if you're working, you know, um, daily and for hours. Uh, there's, no, there's no shortcut. You have to you have to spend the time on the instrument. Beginning players need to spend an enormous amount of time to get the, the connection with the dexterity and the cerebellum in the brain here, the stem that that, that controls that. Um, I wouldn't suggest doing endless uh, arpeggios because arpeggio guys seem to get stuck in playing arpeggios and then we get out of that play in the pocket thing that I was saying before uh, and they tend to only listen to themselves because they think they're arpeggiotically clever. Is that even a word? Anyway, they'll do. So that's self-defeating in a way. Um, yeah, do the work. Just, you know, put in the hours. You know, we, we used to do, you know, because we were so young, you know, we, we were virtually kids and we're thrown in to you know, thousands of people a night, every night, you know. So we, we were um, just, and following, you know, when you're opening up for bands, you know, there's so much <laughs> better players, right? So you don't want to look like an idiot. So you want to do your work. And then when you're the better player, you need to be better uh, when you're in the headline band because you don't want the guy in the support band to make you look like an idiot, right? So, so there's some... Um, there was incentive to doing the hard work, but, you know, we were fortunate. You know, like I say, you, you know, you get up late in a hotel room, but you play for a few hours and you go to the gig and you play for, you know, half an hour or an hour and then you do 
the show for another two or three hours. So to pull six to eight hours a day practice wasn't that hard. And there was purpose in it, you know. Um, so, you know, sometimes, you know, I'd know I'd do, you know, eight hours a day just on the base, not at a gig. That'd be, you know, during the day. And then if it was in town gig, you know, um, then go to the gig. And then you're doing, you know, two hour shows on stage and, you know, two hours on stage will equal about a oh, hundred rehearsals, you know, with a band. I mean, two hour show is a good, good long show to play and be on it the whole time. Um, and then encore for more and things like that. So, you know, we, yeah, we had that, but that taught us that the hard work thing is a necessary thing. Um, and you know, there's a saying, you only end up with the technique you settle for. So if, if you're having a little bit of a hard time, then don't beat yourself up about it. Just know that it's going to happen, but it'll happen only if you keep the input, you know, because if you climb a mountain, it's hard going up and there's a certain pace, right? But if you keep at it, you'll end up at the top and you see the view in the other valley. But if you back off, you come down the mountain faster, way faster than you were going up it. So you just keep that steady progress. And every now and then there's a spurt and then it's slow, then there's a plateau and then you go again, you know, and away. But just know that you will get better. Don't look for shortcuts. Don't look for tricks. Um, don't taint your style with just random information from the internet. And when people say, you know, why did so-and-so do this? It's like, who cares? <laughs> okay, he did that because he did that. But no one really knows. It's on a record. You don't even know if he did that. And that baseline, for example, may have been the producers. You, you just don't know. You can't go by that type of exposure, that information, you know. I've seen people saying, oh, this is, you know, this, that. And you know from the playing that, say, the chord changes are way more um, sophisticated than those guys would have known. So you know straight away producers put them in there, you know. Um, so yeah, you've got to be yourself. Play what you hear. Play what you want to play. Don't put obstructions in the way. Enjoy the journey because it's a lifetime journey and um, development's hard maintenance is easy so if you do the work to develop it then maintaining it is pleasure sheer fun Thanks for listening to the Crushing Bass Podcast. We're here weekly with information all bass related and celebrity interviews with some very famous bass players. So watch out for that. If you'd like to learn bass or take your bass knowledge further, visit our education site at crushingbass.com.